Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week I am turning my attention towards season two of Hulu's Castle Rock. I know that I said that I wasn't sure if I'd be getting around to it, and I can't say that I will be reviewing every episode, but I have watched the first episode and I do want to share my thoughts, so stay tuned for this. And as I record this, it's the day after Halloween, but I do want to say Happy Halloween, Happy Belated Halloween, everyone. I hope that you um, all had a good one. As I record this, um, my furry co-host is lying on top of one of my daughter's costumes, a unicorn. Uh, so she is still in the, the Halloween season and the Halloween spirit, uh, which I think is very appropriate as I record my thoughts on a Stephen King property. So before I get any further with Castle Rock Season 2, I do want to get into some listener emails. And up first, I will be reading a, an email from Mark Den Beeson, who writes, Hello, constant reader. I'm a fan of your podcast and love listening to your in-depth analysis of all King's thing, of all things King. So thank you, Mark. I live in Port Hope, Ontario, aka Derry, where both it films were shot. My wife and I were fortunate to be cast as extras in both films, and as a huge fan of the book, I have to tell you it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. In the most recent film, my wife was in the scene when Pennywise appears to Richie on the Paul Bunyan statue, and I was in a scene when Bill is running through the carnival searching for the boys. So that's pretty cool. Um, so keep your eyes open, guys, when you watch this to see if you can uh, find Mark and his wife. I would like to offer you my thoughts on both films while focusing mainly on Chapter 2. Right out of the shoot, I would like to declare my minority status by stating that uh, I enjoyed the second movie immensely more than the first I feel that the chapter one is highly overrated. Most people think it's an excellent movie. Well, I thought it was just a good movie. I was disappointed for two reasons. First, I felt the powerful bond that was formed between these kids just wasn't well represented. I would have loved to see more scenes of them just hanging out and having fun, just being kids. I'm going to interject. I completely agree. I think that that was something that I discussed in my review of the first one. I do wish that, um, again, I know that this is your email, but I do, I do want to rehash something that I felt was missing from the whole point of this uh the 2017 adaptation and, and this adaptation and that is the, the the spirit and the wonder of childhood they they missionized uh the losers they they weaponized them as i like i called them a black ops squad to go hunt down the the creature it um whereas in the book it's through their friendship it's through them being kids and having the the uh the, the wonder of childhood and that magic that, that it brings where uh, there's hope and there's wonder and there's imagination and they were able to weaponize that which are inherent components of childhood and it springs um, from just being able to hang out and play and imagine and pretend and that is definitely missing. Um, I would have loved to see more scenes of them just hanging out. Uh, every other time, but the only time that happens is that brief swimming scene. I agree. Every other time they are together, they're talking business. Also, the conflict that separates them near the end of the film, I felt weakened that bond. My second issue is that I felt Bill Skarsgård was underutilized and over-CGI'd. He was freaking amazing as Pennywise and was given next to no dialogue other than the Georgie conversation. I was left wanting more after almost every Pennywise encounter. That brings me to why I loved It Chapter 2. The bond between them is well established through the various flashbacks of them just hanging out. 
I would have loved to see some of those flashback scenes in the first film. I was also thrilled with the fact that Skarsgård was given more dialogue. It was very satisfying to see Pennywise without the aid of CGI, just banter and taunt, much like Curry was able to do in the original miniseries. The adult cast was phenomenal, with Hater being an obvious standout. His deadpan line delivery had me in stitches. But once again, I believe I'm in the minority when I say that McAvoy was brilliant. You are. Most reviews I've heard said that his performance was mediocre, but I disagree vehemently. When I think about the younger Bill, there is nothing in his speaking mannerisms outside of his stutter that I could put my finger on as, as distinctive. Yet as soon as I heard McAvoy speak as an adult Bill, even before the stutter, he made me think immediately of the young Bill, and I couldn't tell you why. Being able to hone in on subtleties of a character that, to most people, are indefinable and bring them to life is the mark of a brilliant actor. And I will not say that McAvoy doesn't have the chops when it comes to acting. He's one of the most charismatic actors working today. Um, he's able to elevate roles. I just don't think that his... I just don't think that Bill, as was written was written in a way for him to really even have a chance of, of standing out. In fact, in my review, I talked about how they, there were some choices that were made to that character that have nothing to do with Bill Hader, um, uh, James McAvoy, that kind of make him out to be a, a dick uh, that I wish that they hadn't done. <clears throat> but anyway, um, I enjoyed the spider reveal. Um, spoiler alert. I enjoyed the spider reveal at the end and understood the choice to put the face of Pennywise on it. I remember watching the miniseries and being completely unable to connect his spider creature to the clown that I've been seeing throughout the films. As much as I loved it, I had my issues. The bad de-aging effects used on the kids, although I know it was necessary, was very distracting. Stanley's suicide being portrayed as a heroic sacrifice I found extremely offensive. I was disappointed they didn't forget again as they did in the book. A very sad thing but very powerful in its message of the nature of their friendships. Seeing the leper again and Georgie in the basement again was just more of the same, and this movie could have done without those scenes. I completely agree. All in all, I thought it was a great movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was almost three hours that flew by for me. If it was for four, I don't think I would have been disappointed. And as icing on this cinematic cake, I was able to watch the beauty of my town showcased on the big screen once again. All the best, constant reader. Keep doing what you're doing. Best regards. Mark from Derry. Mark, though we disagree... I do appreciate the fact that uh, you, you did write in. So thank you for being our eyes and ears on the ground in Derry. Um, so that, and that, that's why I want you guys to write in. I want you to share why you liked the things that maybe I didn't. Because there's people that, you know, tune into the Stephen King cast, not just to hear me rag on Stephen King properties. And I, I'm going to fully acknowledge that between It Chapter 2 um, between my review of the Institute, and I felt that I reviewed something else recently. That, oh, Pet, so Pet Cemetery came out. I didn't like Pet Cemetery. It Chapter 2 came out. I didn't really like it that much. The Institute came out. I wasn't a huge fan of the Institute. So I could understand why people, you know, tune in if there's any disappointment, like, oh my God, here he goes again. Just not liking a Stephen King thing. I thought that he was the host of the Stephen King cast. Why doesn't he like Stephen King stuff? It's not that I don't like Stephen King. Or it's not why, uh, that I don't like these things. It's just that, obviously, I hold this author to a high regard, and I hold the properties that he is attached to to a high regard. And um, as such, I, I need to uh, judge them against each other and, and what they are capable of being rather than just what they are. Um, because good can be found in, in everything. There's great production value within It Chapter 2. The great costuming, cinematography is beautiful, great casting, 
Um, and some of the performances are fantastic, certainly. I just don't think that it all congeals into something um, that, that, that stands out. And um, so anyone that, that might be disappointed in, in my opinions and my reviews, I do need you to help provide some, some counterbalance here. So feel free to, to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. All right. Because uh, we have a uh, lot, uh, I mean, it is still recent. Um, it came out in September as I record this. It's November, but I mean, I know that there's a lot of thoughts out there. So um, I'm going to keep on reading some uh, reviews of It Chapter 2. Uh, we have Michael who writes, Greetings, I enjoy your podcast. It's a great way for a newcomer to the King universe to immerse himself in the lore and world of Stephen King. How I did not discover it before my 30s is beyond me. I'm going to interject. I'm sorry. In the background, um, my furry co-host is just shaking her ears right now. She, The older she gets, the worse her allergies are. It's just it's hard for her to, to really stay comfortable um, for long periods of time. And now is the, the part of the night um, in between her, you know, eating, um, between eating and, you know, doing her, her thing. But before she goes to bed, she goes through this whole routine of... Uh, just kind of maybe what you're hearing in the background. Um, just the joys of, of living with pugs. Um, okay, back to Michael's email. Oh, there she goes. She's back on the unicorn. Um, <clears throat> how I did not discover it before my 30s is beyond me. I enjoy your retrospective look at his work. It helps me in choosing what to read next. With that being said, I must disagree with your take on chapter two. I'm sorry that you hated the movie. I don't know if I hated the movie, but I didn't love the movie. While listening, it felt like we saw two completely different movies. While I agree that there were many beats that it missed, overall, it captured the essence of the book. It does seem like you went to the movie or started the pod with a chip on your shoulder. We as fans often have our own version of these stories in our heads way before movies come out, and we often can be disappointed when someone else's vision doesn't meet your own specifications. Trust me, I hated the remake of Pet Cemetery and Dark Phoenix. I try to see these movies as interpretations, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. In Chapter 2, we must remember that it is still the same story, not a sequel. I agree that the scares were scarce and often played confusingly, as if the filmmakers couldn't decide on horror or comedy. My issue with this was Richie. I loved Bill Hader, but often his reaction or response in a potentially scary moment takes the tensity out of the moment, um, and what could have been a great scare is played for laughs. I'm not sure what you meant by scarcity of child murders because there were two pretty horrific ones where the first one had only Georgie's. I definitely agree that Bowers was useless considering he didn't remove Mike from the equation. Not sure the reason for that. I do disagree about uh, needing to see the losers' livelihoods in excess as I felt the movie did a decent job of showing them successful. The movie was already three hours. The average audience won't sit through longer. I'll use the same argument for The Ritual of Chud. As a fan, it would have been awesome to see the macroverse touched on a bit more, but as a storyteller, it makes sense to cut it down as it doesn't really serve to drive the plot. It exists more as an exposition for its being. Opening that can would have taken the audience out of the central focus of the movie and I assume would have been met with negative responses. Your constant reference to the Dark Tower makes sense, but it's unfair to hold that movie to a level as it's not a piece of shared movie universe. Um, I'm going to interject for a second. So <clears throat> my references, any reference I make to the Dark Tower, and if, if I'm remembering correctly in my review of, 
it uh, chapter two, the movie, I you know obviously referred to uh, Katet um, and everyone coming together to um, to beat a uh, uh, an obstacle that they can't do um, individually, which is the theme that is most potently expressed in the Dark Tower, but is seen throughout um, multiple. Uh, multiple uh, works within the the Stephen King canon. So I did not go out of my way to make any literal references to the Dark Tower, but thematic references to the Dark Tower, um, which I do have to, I, I do want to kind of push back on that because I think that that is valid um, due to the fact that this is a piece of a larger work. All right, um, it isn't necessarily directly tied into the dark tower but the themes expressed do represent a theme that king has been working on for the entirety of his his publishing career so um the themes of working together to overcome an obstacle yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna reference the dark tower um with that but it, it i'm not comparing it in any way or saying that it's it's less than the dark tower or by not literally referring to the Dark Tower, it makes it less uh, a movie. That that if I did state that, I do apologize because that wasn't the point. Anyway, so um, uh, Mike continues. Fans understand it, but the majority of the audiences wouldn't. Uh, as for the town of Derry and its inhabitants, perhaps the filmmakers were giving the audience too much credit, assuming they would understand the sickness that lies over Derry is still there and not have to expound on it a second time. As for the spider, yes, it sucked, but I don't think any version would have met any expectations. It's such a weird choice for the book. Judging from the harsh opinions of the miniseries Spider, the filmmakers may not have had it in them to go to too different from something familiar to the audience. I thought the cavern was great and a wonderful improvement over the miniseries. All the people caught in the spider webs gave me the impression that they were in no imminent danger and could be easily saved, which is what, um, which made. Uh, Tim Curry's Pennywise less of a menace to me. In this one, there was no doggy bags. As for the losers versus Pennywise, I saw this as part of a story about overcoming childhood trauma. That is definitely true. And knowing that they had the potential to hurt him. Pennywise began acting out their old traumas, hoping to keep them at bay and prevent, prevent them from banding together, realizing that their union was powerful enough to kill it. He was like a crazed animal, cornered and impulsive, which is exactly what happens at the end. Okay, that's great. Great point. All in all, I thought it was a great movie. Not perfect, not a masterpiece, but a good interpretation. I cried with the losers at the end. I cried for Stan. I cried with Richie on the kissing bridge. I saw an interview with Andy Muschietti, and he said he's planning a supercut with the two films as one, incorporating all deleted footage and footage yet to be filmed. Maybe we'll get more on uh, Chud and Maturin, and you'll get a version that meets your expectations. I am excited about that. I did hear about that as well. I... Um, I uh, I'm not I'm not I'm not in down on the the concept of that I'm I'm not I was just disappointed in it chapter two um but I don't feel ill will towards it and I if it was announced that there was a supercut coming with a new edit um where it it, it followed the the narrative structure of of the book um I think that that would clean up a lot of issues that i had so i'm very excited about that anyway so mike continues as always keep up the great work i can't wait for dr sleep i'm one of the few that 
hated the movie version of The Shining. It butchers the story, and Jack Nicholson is its only saving grace, but I'm anxious to see how a sequel honors a hallowed horror film. Looking forward to hearing your review of it. Losers stick together. Mike. Mike, uh, thank you for writing in, um, though we don't uh, really agree on it. Um, I do agree that losers stick together. So thank you for, for writing in um, and make sure that you share your thoughts on uh, Dr. Sleep when you see it. And up next, we have Bryce, who writes, again, with um, It, It Chapter 2. I absolutely loved the first one. It's what got me to really start my King journey. And since uh, that movie has come out, I have read the book three times along with The Stand. I've gotten into collecting his books and reading all of them. I love this universe and this story. And on that note, the movie was meh, pretty good, but nothing compared to what I felt when I saw the first one. To sum up my thoughts on it, I would say that I was disappointed. It didn't feel right, and I felt like there was a disjustice to the source material. That might just be me. And it felt random with its pacing and just off. The characters were still great, and I loved them still, but they didn't handle them the right way. Uh, Mike most definitely did not come off as the watcher of the lighthouse as he did in the book or even the miniseries. He seems like he was panicking the entire time, and it wasn't Mike, and for Mike to be at the final battle just wasn't right. For him to lie about the ritual not working and hoping um, it would this time made no sense. It made the, the group split more than bring them together, which obviously isn't supposed to happen. Bill was good, but I felt like he was kind of a jerk and a little too crazy. The way him and the kid with the skateboard was handled was very poorly, and to have that kid die and be crucial just didn't flow right with me personally. Bev was good but felt empty um, of what the character was supposed to be. Felt like she was just there because she was supposed to, and all that Tom did to her didn't matter because reasons. Ben had the same issues I have with Bev. Just not what the character is. Just empty, and the way to try to get those two together was barely there, and when it was, it was just weird and forced. Eddie? Well, I always prefer the book Eddie to this one. It's still good. He's a good character. I just wish they made him seem more fragile than they did. Uh, Richie built an amazing job uh, as his character and he killed it um, and then he writes now the only issues I have left is some of the plot choices they made mainly with the ending and the clubhouse the clubhouse should have been brought up at least in the first one I agree but that's really makes sense in this one for people who read the book it wasn't a surprise uh, but for those who haven't, might be confused. Other than that, still had an impact and was well done. Now, the ending is good for what they were given. I didn't like it, but what the source material was, I think they did a good job. But bullying him to death was an interesting choice, but okay. The, over the movie overall was pretty good. I'll see it again, and I do plan to get it when it comes out on DVD. The casting was insanely spot on and great. The scares I thought were pretty well um, not wholly hell scary, but still scary. The book holds a special place in my heart, and no adaptation of it could replace that. The book is so alive and so magical. The town feel, feels real and daring, and the characters feel real and felt like real friends. But as a movie, it was great. 7.5 out of 10. Also, I love the podcast. It's my favorite podcast by far. Keep up the good work and keep killing it, man. Bryce. Bryce! Thank you for writing in. Um, and what's interesting about... Um, what Bryce writes is that he gives it like a 7.5. I would give it um, like a 6.5 or a 7. And that's what's interesting about 
reviews and opinions um, because, you know, I think that Bryce and I are, are very much on the same page, but in his <coughs> review and the way in which he was able to express his thoughts, I feel as though he is more flattering of the movie than I am, even though I think that he and I um, are, are pretty much on the same page. So if I spend a lot of time talking about things that to me don't add up or I don't like, it doesn't mean that as a whole I don't like it. Um, it just might mean that for the time that I have to talk about something, um, I am going to to explain why it's getting the score that it, it, it's getting, which isn't for me an 8 out of 5, a 9 out of 5, a 10 out of 5. It would get a 7.5 because all of the reasons that I would list. But still, a 6.5 or a 7 is better than average, right? So that's one way of looking at it. Okay, uh, and then we have, I'm going to read one from James who writes, switching up, this is uh, um, not an it-related one, but uh, James writes, Hello from Indianapolis. How dare you do all of Joe Hill's books except possibly his best one, Heart-Shaped Box? The book goes from 0 to 60 really quickly and then it doesn't let up. It's insanity at its finest. True to Joe Hill, it's also a tale of redemption and love. The ending will leave you in tears. It did to me at least. Aside from this, your podcast is great. I love that you're finding ways to keep the show going, and he seems to be still relevant, so that that shouldn't be a problem. You have single-handedly reintroduced me to Stephen King, and I thank you, Cy. I'm currently working my way through his extensive oeuvre, and as I am currently reading and listening, I'm remembering your insights, and it's making the experience more enjoyable. Thanks again, and keep up the good work, James. James, thank you for writing in, and... I know, how dare I, how dare I not touch heart-shaped box, um, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do that at some point, that's on one of my, the, the lists of things that, that I'll do, and I'll maybe do it around the time that uh, Lock and Key comes out on Netflix, I think that that would be a good time, and speaking of Joe Hill, there's a couple of Joe Hill related things, I believe that season one of Shudder has concluded, and uh, the, the season finale was an adaptation of Joe Hill's um, by the, was it by the waters of Lake Champlain? Um, there's an adaptation of that that concluded. So I'm, I'm excited about picking up Shudder later on down the road just so I could watch that because I really like that short story. Uh, Full Throttle is out. I'll, I haven't read that yet, but I plan on getting it. Um, and for comic book fans that like Lock and Key, then pick up a basket full of heads. Um, I uh, just got that. I started reading it. I fell asleep, not because of anything to do with the comic book, but because I have been bone tired lately. Um, but from what I was reading, I was really, really enjoying it, and I'll share my thoughts on a later episode. Um, but there's definitely a lot of Joe Hill goodness to go out there. Um, so until I get around to uh, reviewing Heart Shape Box, um, Make sure that you check out all of the, 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 the Joe Hill stuff that's out there for you. Um, but James, thank you for all of the kind words. Uh, it is pretty crazy that when I started the Stephen King cast, there was just a... There, there wasn't a ton of Stephen King um, podcasts out there. Now there's a lot, and that's how it should be. And um, we hadn't hit the Stephen King renaissance. In fact, go back and listen to my first episode to sort of see where we were in terms of what Stephen King, uh, where Stephen King was at this moment in, in pop culture. Now he's back, baby. He has, re, he has reclaimed his, his mantle of King. 
Um, but when I started this podcast, that was not the case. So I'm glad that things have changed. Okay, guys, uh, that's all I got for emails right now. I'm going to put a pin in, it, pin in it. I have more emails to read, but I, I just don't want to spend the, the rest of this time uh, reading emails. It is Friday night. I'm pretty tired, uh, and I want to uh, get to my thoughts on Castle Rock. So uh, so if you do have any thoughts on Stephen Kingcast, uh, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And um, if you have any, uh, a couple minutes on your hands, a review on iTunes would help me out greatly. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's talk about Castle Rock. Uh, so before I talk about Castle Rock Season 2, I just very briefly want to talk about Castle Rock Season 1 and the excitement that I had heading into Season 1 and just how that was a real highlight of last summer, the, the summer of, of 2018. Um, I really enjoyed it and I, I, just want, I, I just want to throw the disclaimer out there that I was fortunate enough last summer... Uh, to interview uh, Dustin Thomason, who was incredibly gracious of his time. Um, he stepped away from editing uh, Castle Rock Season 1 to talk to me for over an hour. Um, I am, I will, if I, doesn't matter how long I do the Stephen King cast, uh, that moment was a moment I will be eternally grateful for. Um, so I, just want to throw that out there that anything that i say about castle rock please understand that i um i'm just appreciative to someone that is is show running it and creating it that gave up some of his time to to talk to me about it um so the the, the first season was a, a really well done blend of mixing past stephen king works um, into a, a recognizable present. Um, and I think that at the, the forefront of that was Scott Glenn as Alan Pangborn. Um, so rather than giving us Alan Pangborn in his prime, in a sort of remix of his, uh, his greatest hits, um, or, or doing a, a rehash of uh, The Dark Half, or a retelling of Needful Things, um, those stories have already been told and um the the extent of of how they occurred within this version of castle rock was left purposefully vague um so for uh for fans of the the chronology of stephen king and the canon of stephen king you can you can watch it um and and let your imagination fill in the blanks based on what you have read before in the past the show doesn't go out of its way to say that once upon a time he saw sparrows um, or, or fought a, a little gremlin man that came to town. But, uh, you know, there are newspaper clippings. Of course, the history of Castle Rock was important. So it was all insinuated. And that was fun. That was very, very fun. And so on top of that, that geeky Stephen King component, we just got good television. Uh I mean, I before I started uh, recording this episode, I just wanted to. Um, well, actually, I uh, I sing my daughter to sleep every night. Uh, she needs me to sing her songs, and I've been singing. I I don't have a, a lovely voice, but it works for my audience of one. And 
one of the songs I was singing tonight, I was, I was doing some, some Roy Orbison, and knowing that I was going to be uh, reviewing Castle Rock tonight, it made me go back and rewatch that scene from Castle Rock season one with Noel Fisher uh, when, he's in, when he's in Shawshank and crying starts to play. My, uh, I'll never forget me being on, I remember exactly where I was sitting on the couch. I remember my mouth being open the entire time at what I was watching. First of all, I'm a sucker for Roy Orbison. Uh, but the, the, the staging of that scene, uh, the, the way that it worked in sync with the music, it was an incredible incredibly potent uh four or five minutes of television uh and that is something that cannot be stated enough uh so not uh, we got that we got the queen that episode of castle rock was so heartbreaking and such an incredible showcase for sissy spacek and to just give this opportunity for this legendary actress and the originator of Stephen King uh, characters in cinema another opportunity to shine pun intended it was extraordinary Um, and then also to see the original Stephen King uh, cinematic character face off with the freshest um, with uh, Sissy Spacek and Bill Skarsgård um, that was the, the the serendipity of that and and the symmetry of that it, it, it was really really beautiful uh, we also got the kids origin which dipped into dark tower territory even though they don't they, they didn't state it um, that was incredibly shocking and disorienting and done very very well uh the lingering uh questions of the nature of reality around this show was really really good um and the the casting and the acting from andre holland uh scott glenn sissy spacek uh jane levy just everyone that was involved it really i don't want to say just everyone that was involved did such Really, really good work. So heading into Castle Rock Season 2, um, it, it brought a lot of goodwill for me because I really enjoyed Castle Rock Season 1. And I have a lot of thoughts on Castle Rock Season 2 so far. I'm only on this first episode, so I um, have to reserve a lot of my judgment. But as I'll get into, I have a lot of clashing views and there's a lot of uh discord in my mind oh discordia anyway uh let me just kind of get into my thoughts so in the in the like the previous season there's a there's a sort of uh running theme here that that each season begins a certain way so like last season this season starts with a mystery in the woods okay last season began with andre holland's character as a child um you know running through the woods with with alan chasing after him um except this time it's uh or alan looking for him uh except this time this is a blood-covered young woman carrying a box marked uh, ravening angel 
um, which at the beginning of this episode we're, we're led to believe it's a manuscript um, because fans of Stephen King um, and those that are in the know kind of guess who this character is and are able to go into the, the, the story that made this character famous and um, start to pull out the, the, the things that, that made that story that story. So obviously a, a manuscript um, is a part of it. And uh, these scenes anyway are intercut with the distinct sounds of the, the clickety-clack of a typewriter. So, you know, and this is our introduction <coughs> to classic Stephen King character Annie Wilkes. <coughs> And this scene, like I said, it's playing with the established knowledge that we have of this character with the, the typewriter, the manuscript. It raises the question of, will we see Paul Sheldon? Is this an origin for Annie? Or is this some alternate twist on Annie um, where rather than her spoiler for misery being killed at the hands of paul does she escape instead or were the events even more different than we expect when we see the hallucinations of a man following her we instinctively go to the idea that she's running away uh, from her father at least that's where my mind goes for um presumably after killing him but what if it's not her father what if she's running away from paul sheldon you know, what if this is a, a bizarro version that's, you know, obviously taking place on the, you know, somewhere on, within the multiverse spinning around the Dark Tower. Um, you know, as we'll see, the, these were the, the thoughts that I had at first, um, at first. But then as we'll see in the hallucinations that she'll have later in this episode, the, the style of dress, I would say, if anything, it is more similar to John Shooter from Secret Window, Secret Garden, a novella from the Four Past Midnight publication. And my prediction um, is that she perhaps murdered an author. Um, maybe the at first i thought maybe that the box that she was running through the woods is his manuscript we'll later find out what is in that box um but i'll, I'll get into the, the the john shooter of it all but i'll, I'll just say that there's a some thematic sense that it makes and there is definitely some just publication connective tissue that supports that considering the fact that this is a story that is co-starring lizzie kaplan as annie wilkes and tim robbins as pop merrill who had had been referenced in a couple other i think uh stephen king stories but was featured in sundog a novella which was also published in Four Past Midnight. So to have two components of the same uh, novella collection in the same season makes some semblance of sense to me. So then we um, meet adult Annie currently with her daughter, Joy, played by Elsie Fisher from 8th Grade. If you guys have not seen 8th Grade and you like 
uh, painful reminders of how awful middle school is, then please go out and watch 8th Grade. Um, Elsie Fisher brings a painfully honest authenticity to the terrors and horrors and insecurities that come with adolescence. Uh, and so she, she, she's great. She brings a, a vulnerability, I, I, I find. You just really root for her because she brings a sincerity and you just kind of want to hug her um, and tell her that everything is okay. Um, and so the, the fact that she's traveling with someone who may or may not be her mother um, and someone that we know through pop culture from the incredible portrayal of Kathy Bates and, of course, Stephen King's portrayal of her in the pages of Misery, we, we know her to be an iconic villain, incredibly dangerous, off her rocker, unbalanced. Um, so for this... Uh, incredibly sympathetic character played by an incredibly sympathetic actress uh, to be uh, traveling from state to state at the hands of this <clears throat> Annie Wilkes character it's a ticking time bomb and you really worry for her safety and as they head through Maine, we see a sign for Jerusalem's Lot. We saw a sign for Jerusalem's Lot uh, last season as well. There was a, a bus station at, uh, at Jerusalem's Lot that did not feature vampires. Uh, and we're going to be getting a lot more Jerusalem's Lot. And I'm going to try and refer to it as Jerusalem's Lot and not Salem's Lot for very specific reasons. The first of which is because... This is how the show is referring to it, and I think that there is a, a very definitive reason why are they referring to it as Jerusalem's Lot and not its more famous uh, namesake, Salem's Lot. So this is, though it's called Castle Rock, they are definitely expanding the Stephen King locales. And then uh, we get a car crash, which not only is a Stephen Kingism, but it's a, a very... Uh, specific uh, trope within the pages of misery so for Annie Wilkes again the car crash um, is an inversion of what we know of her from misery so in misery she was the one who rescued Paul from the car crash here she um, is the one getting into the car crash all right and then we we see uh, very, very creepy Castle Rock scarecrows um, tacked up on on, uh, on trees and on the Castle Rock sign celebrating the anniversary of Castle Rock. It's a great visual, so creepy. And for me, it's reminiscent of the cover of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And again, I've talked about it before, and... I'm sorry because I know that on some level reviews are supposed to be objective, but I mean if you spend time uh, creating reviews of of content on your Friday nights, there's definitely going to be some level of subjectivity. So when I was uh, first reading Stephen King, Nightmares and Dreamscapes was the first new publication 
of Stephen King since I had become a Stephen King fan. And I'll never forget the excitement of seeing that cover in magazine advertisements um, and actually going to the grocery store. That's where I got it from, the grocery store. Um, picking up, holding in my hand, seeing this massive Stephen King book with this beautiful cover of a scarecrow staked into the middle of the road. Um, and this this made me think of that. And I, I hope that this is a, a shout out, sorry guys, um, a shout out to uh, that, that cover um, because that is such a fantastic, beautiful cover of a Stephen King novel or a Stephen King collection. All right. And then we get, after the credits, we get uh, our introduction to Ace Merrill. Um, Ace, who um, was famously, well, maybe not famously. Um, I, don't, I don't know if many people, uh, when they think of this actor, they think of Ace Merrill. I do. But Kiefer Sutherland and Rob Reiner's Stand By Me based on the novella, a lot of novellas, uh, The Body. So what is a nice little shout out is that right after we are introduced to Ace, uh, there is a train that rolls by, which to me is a definite shout out to Stand By Me. And Ace, let's talk about Ace a little bit before I, I, I move on, but Ace, uh, until Henry Bowers, came along in the pages of it ace functioned as really that he he was the, the the pinnacle of that bully character that king liked to play with um as he did in uh carrie as he did in sometimes they come back um and then ace he just really started to perfect it with ace merrill but like i said go back and listen to my review of uh, the body, the body functions really as the the rough draft and the prototype for what he's going to do with it, and then he takes that idea of that bully that's unhinged, and that the the danger that comes with being a child because there is a belief that despite the fact that children, the, the, bad things are happening to children all the time. Uh, adults almost don't see that um, happening and it's almost unfathomable that a psychopath child could be running around with other children and so th this bully character was a, a true threat and that was Ace um, and he just has a cool bully name Ace Ace John Ace Merrill and then later on um, and uh, Ace winds up coming back as an adult in the pages of Needful Things uh, to get revenge against the man that put him away, Castle Rock's very own gunslinger played in the uh, season one of Castle Rock by Scott Glenn, Alan Pangborn. So um, Ace comes back and here we get another version of Ace. And I do want to say another version and um with the introduction of ace into this show god this is where i start to just sound like a massive nerd um okay so we have to take some things 
we have to discuss them before moving on further about what the show is, what the show isn't, what our expectations should be. So in season one, as presented to us, there was a a, a soft understanding with some caveats that what occurred in the works of Stephen King functioned as prologue to the events that were occurring in the show Castle Rock. So I mentioned Alan Pangborn. Um, you know, we were living, we, we were witnessing an Alan Pangborn who had once been sheriff of this town, who no longer was sheriff of this town. There were newspaper clippings of the events of needful things. Cujo was referenced. There were all, um, I, I believe that the events of Stand By Me were, were mentioned as well. So there were all of these things that were referenced and mentioned about the, I think, uh, the events of the Dead Zone also. But there, there were all of these uh, characters and uh, events that were hinted at and sort of lurked in the, the dark history of what Castle Rock was. However, there were some uh, specific changes to characters and to history that made you go, huh, okay, so it's not really a one-to-one, it's not as clean as a... a, a a one-to-one correlation between the the past and the the present that there are some changes being made so for instance in this version of castle rock events polly chalmers never existed in a way in which she and alan were romantically linked um, because that freed up alan to be with ruth um and so Polly didn't function within the story that needed to be told. So when that occurs and you accept that, you have to accept that you are dealing with a version of Castle Rock, not necessarily the version of Castle Rock, not or not the one that you knew of from the books. And spoiler alert for Castle Rock Season 1, the idea of the multiverse is directly expressed um, I did mention the origins of the kid, and that is the origin of the kid. That he came from, or at least that is his story, that he came from another Castle Rock, another version of Castle Rock. And so if there is one version of Castle Rock, you can extrapolate that. There are multiple versions of Castle Rock, and that includes the Castle Rock that you have read about. And this is a version of Castle Rock that is not that. It's close, it's close, but it's not necessarily the same thing. So... You have to take that in mind when dealing with Ace Merrill because the Ace Merrill that is presented to us now cannot be the Ace Merrill that we had read about in the pages of uh, The Body because in the pages of The Body that takes place in the 1950s. And so if you just do the math, the Ace that we see within uh, this story um, would not be the proper age for the ace that would exist had it been the ace that we had read about in the pages of the body. Then you could say that, okay, so just the timeline has been shifted much in the way that comic book movies and you know comic book stories shift the timeline. That's fine. That's fine. So maybe there is a version of Ace in which he was a bully to kids along the trail road tracks and stuff, but it's not exactly the same one-to-one concept of what happened in the books happened in the books and what happened in the show takes place after the events of the books 
Not in the way that Damon Lindelof and his writing room is treating the novel, the graphic no, I'm not saying the graphic novel because it's not the graphic novel. It was the comic book, and there's nothing wrong with saying that. A graphic novel is not the same thing as a trade paperback. I almost said that, and it drives me nuts when people say that. The comic book Watchmen. Um, so currently on HBO, this fantastic show is on Watchmen, and it takes place in real time uh, down the, the timeline of the events of Watchmen. So it's 2019 in the world that had of of the fictional Watchmen timeline um so all the events of Watchmen happened and then 30 years go by and then here we are now in 2019 and it posits what the world would look like what would characters be like functioning in a world where the events of Watchmen took place so um that is a direct correlation here it's it's not it's looser and it's more open to interpretation wow that was a that was a tangent um but i just wanted to kind of get that out of the way because there's going to be a lot of areas that pop up like this that you kind of have to wrap your mind around that you're getting different interpretations of characters and concepts that you have seen and experienced when you first read about them in the works of stephen king and we're getting a different interpretation here where characters and concepts and settings are being thrown into a blender and made into a smoothie um, that that makes up Castle Rock um, season two. So as we first meet Ace and he he's leaving, we see he's exiting the Emporium Glorium, which again, <clears throat> here I go I, again. So this takes place after the events of Castle Rock season one, and in Castle Rock season one, the events of uh, Needful Things were referenced, and to be uh, if if the events of Needful Things had occurred, that means that Leland Gaunt arrived to Castle Rock after uh, Pop Merrill, spoiler, met his end in the conclusion of the novella The Sun Dog, um, and the the vacancy of the Emporium Galorium allowed just the the literal space. For Leland Gaunt to come in and set up his shop. So even though the events of an interpretation of needful things occurred within this world, uh, they did not occur in such a way that saw Pop Merrill perish or the Emporium Glorium burn down. Uh, so you can extrapolate this to the 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 idea where uh pop merrill existed at the same time as whatever version of leland gaunt we got okay so um we have uh we follow ace he goes to jerusalem's lot he has a confrontation with um uh abdi who is his uh, foster slash adopted brother from Somalia. And this is weird to see Ace Merrill, and you got to think about the Ace that we were familiar with from the books, have family. Um, here he is. It's actually, I'm not sure. I might have read this. I might have gotten this wrong or not. But um, Ace is, in, in the books, Ace is Pop's, uh nephew in the show it's presented that he's definitely more of a 
son, if anything else, to Ace. I don't know if he's the biological son. I don't know if he's like uh, literally the, the cousin, but functions as a son. I, I don't know, but definitely there is a father-son relationship there. Anyway, um, but Abdi is played by, um, most famously, you would know him from um, Captain Phillips. In his first uh, role, somehow managed to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Tom Hanks himself. And uh, I just really like this actor. And I'm interested to see, you know, what he's able to bring to the show as the uh, adopted uh, son of of Pop, the 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 stepbrother of of Ace, and they're having issues because Ace is shaking down the uh, Somalian refugees, uh, the, the business owners that have set up shop on. Uh, some land in Jerusalem's lot, uh, but Abdi's not having it anymore, and he's definitely stepping into Pop's uh, business shoes and is rivaling Ace's authority and power, which is, it's just an interesting dynamic already that, that we get, that although it is different from what we get from the books, um, there is a the, this family drama being played out across two two famous Stephen King towns with um, famous Stephen King characters and some new additions to the, the, the mythos. It, it's interesting. It's 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 interesting, and it's enough for me to to want to know what's going to happen next. Anyway, so we get. Um, some news that Shawshank is reopening, which is establishing that the events of this season are taking place after the events of season one, and knowing what is lurking in the basement of Shawshank is very, very exciting. So I, I don't know if that, that means that we're going to get a return of that particular character. I, I don't think that we necessarily should, because I think that the point of that character's story has been told in... Uh, in Castle Rock season one, but it is, it is interesting. And then we get the introduction to Tim Robbins and Pop Merrill. Okay, we need to stop for a second um, and talk about the importance of this. Tim Robbins is in Castle Rock season two. This is big casting. And I don't think that it's being talked about enough. Uh, so the, the you have the actor who played the main character in the most popular movie of all time. That happens to be a Stephen King adaptation. And he's now co-starring in Castle Rock Season 2. That's a big deal. Um, and let's talk about, let's talk about this. So Pop, he's playing Pop Merrill. So it, it couldn't be further from Andy uh, Dufresne. Uh, Pop from the books is awful. Pop is a, is a um, threatening and wily and mean and uh, greedy man. All right. We don't get that exactly here. This is a pop that is much more nuanced. And I'll get to 
I'll get to that later, but I just need to, to state up front that that is the pop that, that we're getting. Um, and then there is some... Uh, we, we get more Joy and Annie Wilkes. Uh, Joy leaves the cabin and meets another teenage human playing the guitar. Um, her name on the show is Chance. Um, okay, that's her name. Uh, and she is singing a song about witches. Now, this is the second time on the show already that uh, I think that they, they've mentioned witches, uh, hinting that they're buried. So I imagine that witches are going to come up um, in play later on in the show or the season so witches um king hasn't done witches much spoiler alert for grandma um he does witches there and spoiler alert for uh the dark tower it's not a spoiler i'm sorry uh but raya of the coos is a witch um but the the your, your typical witch in or, or just really like you know, witchcraft or that that idea of like Satanism. Not that. Wi- Sorry, I I do apologize. I do apologize to anyone that that practices witchcraft. I understand that it's that there is a, a difference between what actually occurs in real life with it and how it is depicted. So if I do state something about like worshiping Satan, I I, I know I know that that's not the case. I'm just talking about the way that it's presented in in fiction. Um, and Stephen King hasn't done that, so I don't know what you know we're we're going to expect, but I I definitely see that they're planting the seeds to to water this particular witchy plant. Um, and Chance introduces Joy to other rebellious uh, youth living in this complex. Um, and guys, I don't know, just watching Elsie Fisher, just want to fit in. It, again, going back to the, the movie 8th grade, it is just you want her to be accepted and you want her to be comfortable being with other people. You just root for her. Okay, and then she returns um, home and Annie returns home and we start to see that classic Annie Wilkes mania. And I'm going to get to Lizzie Kaplan's portrayal later on, but we start to see the Annie that we're more familiar with. Annie Googles herself. Um, don't ever Google yourself, guys. Uh, and because we, we see what we had suspected, that she is on the run from murder. And then we meet Nadia, Abdi's sister, and Pop's adopted daughter. But not before we get a nighttime scene of the construction site in Jerusalem's lot and the bugs that are escaping the soiled, sour ground. Pop is waiting for uh, for Nadia, and we learn that he's suffering from cancer and how much of a soft spot he has for her. But I wouldn't say that it's entirely altruistic, uh, because Pop, despite the fact that he is more nuanced than his book counterpart, he is still devilish. Against her wishes, he's bringing her into the family drama. Um... And I don't know. I, I I don't know where his loyalty lies. Um, you know, his, I don't know where his loyalty to to Abdi lies. Uh, the way that he talks to Nadia, talk to your brother. He says, I, I don't know. It, to me, I almost got the sense that he doesn't want to see anything happen to Ace, or to have Ace do something stupid. And he certainly doesn't want to bring attention to whatever. Uh, business he has going on but i i do feel it in this interaction he has a genuine love for nadia 
um, even though he might not have that that same love uh, for 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 Abdi. And then Annie breaks into Abdi and Nadia's house to to score the key to the drugs at the hospital and happens to be present when Ace exacts his revenge upon his adopted brother for poaching his clients. And then she has a heart-to-heart with Nadia in which we see the flashback of what was in the box. And it was not a manuscript and it was not a typewriter, but it was a baby. So that's where we know we get joy from. And then the moment that Annie lets Joy go into town on her own, she's confronted by Ace, who knows about her true identity, and it does not go well for Ace, guys. Now, this scene, I did not expect this scene. This scene was wild. Um, Think about what we get here. We get Annie Wilkes versus Ace Merrill. We have... Two iconic characters. This is a celebrity death match of Stephen King characters. So it is cool to see two characters that we never thought that we would see interact with each other, be able to do so, and to see a definitive winner. And it's Annie Wilkes, and it's not even close. The second that Ace stepped to her and threatened her, threatened her daughter, he didn't stand a chance. What she does with that ice cream, I have. There is brilliance in the brutality of the usage of that ice cream scooper. That was crazy wild um, and and painful and hard to look away from um, at the same time. She jammed that sucker and the way that she was punching it down his throat, that was brutal. Um, And... Again, I'm going to get into Lizzie Kaplan as Annie Wilkes, but it it went a long way in showing just the the brute force and the, the key word is force of this character um, and how Ace, despite his villainy and despite his mean streak, just did not stand a chance. So that was a really cool moment. And uh, then she has to dispose of the body. So she brings it to the building site and sale and oh, almost there, Jerusalem's lot. Um, and she falls through and then uh, lands in what appears to be some sort of crypt underground. And then bugs fly out reminiscent of uh, the mist. <coughs> and that's it. And that's it for, for episode one. So, okay. I, I, I've gotten into some of my thoughts already. Uh, I, I didn't really give too much of a, a traditional like recap. I touched upon some things, but I, I definitely gave you my thoughts as I went along. But the concept of this season is definitely different in terms of the, the, the philosophy of the show. Because I already talked about like what the, the, the philosophy and, and the concept of season one was. Now, there was a whole plot of season one about, um, uh, you know... Uh, someone returning to Castle Rock after spending time away and having to reconcile the the, 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 the mysteries of his past with the present and um, and, and and so there, there was that but like I said the the drawing factor to me into the world of Castle Rock season one was that there was the suggestion and promise, uh, and th- that promise came with your own interpretation that the events of the Stephen King stories had taken place and now we're picking up after that and allowing stories to be set after that. Um, 
with Stephen King characters who had already existed popping up, right? Uh, this is different. So the events have occurred, but also kind of haven't occurred also um, because we are getting a Salem's Lot misery crossover. And that's a weird combination. I I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, and so this this is where I, I struggle with the show. And I don't, you know, people have asked me if, how's Castle Rock season two? And I, like I said, I've watched the first episode, but I, I am not able to give an opinion yet. I haven't watched enough of it yet. And I'm going to acknowledge them. I'm suffering from cognitive dissonance around Castle Rock season one because this is so not what I expected or what I wanted. And I can't judge it because it's not what I want. Um, I have to judge it for what it is. But as I watch it, I just don't know if it should exist. So I don't know. There's all of these unknown questions that are coming at me within myself because of what I'm watching. And it's difficult for me to actually judge the show for what it is because I don't know how I feel about it. But how I feel about it shouldn't stop me from being able to tell you how I think they constructed this story and constructed this particular reality. <coughs> and it's not as though there isn't some precedence for this because this is very similar to what uh, Brian Fuller had done um, with the Thomas Harris mythos with Hannibal. Um, you know, we didn't get a direct adaptation with any of the Hannibal stories. We got, you know, the, this the reimaginings and, 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 and a remix. And at times, you know, he, he turned things on, on its head because it's not what you expected. And he gave us just a different interpretation. And that is very similar to what um, uh, Sam Shaw and Dustin Thomason are doing with season two of Castle Rock. It also feels very, in in many ways, it also feels Fargo-ish in terms of the, um, the, the, the rival family within the family uh, gang, um, the, the Merrill gang of, of Ace versus Abdi with Pop in the center. Uh, you know, you have Castle Rock on, on one side, Jerusalem's Lot on the other. It's interesting. It feels very Fargo. So to me, it's a weird blend of uh, Brian Fuller's sensibilities um, with, uh, um, oh, I'm going to remember it um, as soon as I leave, but the, the, the showrunner of, of Fargo, who also did Legion, he's good. And uh, Shaw and, and Thomason, who are doing uh, Castle Rock, it's 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 definitely a, a blend of all three, and you can tell that um, Sam and Dustin are are having a lot of fun playing with characters and plot lines that you would never think would interact with each other. Annie Wilkes in Castle Rock, just being in Castle Rock is weird enough. The idea that she might be fighting vampires <laughs> later on i don't know um that that is that is crazy wild stuff um so the merrills i already talked about the the, the changed timeline okay let's talk about uh lizzie kaplan all right before i say anything else i want to say this about lizzie kaplan i like lizzie kaplan a lot 
I think she is an incredibly charming and charismatic performer. Um, she was so good in Party Down. That show, it is a it is a crime that that show was canceled. And if you have never watched it, go watch it. Um, has it? What a stellar cast. Um, she was great as uh, one of the co-leads. I, I think that she, that the fact that she has not been cast in a Marvel movie is uh, a disservice because when she's on, and I don't, I don't know her personally, but to me it seems that when she's playing to her strengths, um, she has a, a, a very dry, sardonic wit that I think would fit in very well. And that's not what she's being asked to do here in Castle Rock season two um what she is doing is modeling kathy bates's performance of annie wilkes so we're seeing uh the the cadence the 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 dialogue um the walk uh the language um she is doing a really good job performing what we had seen from um, from Kathy Bates. It's a recognizable version of Annie Wilkes. To me, I talked about cognitive dissonance. To me, she's acting it very well. I can't say that she's not. She's doing a good job. I just don't know if it's the... I don't know if that is the only interpretation of the Annie Wilkes character, especially seeing as how Annie Wilkes is now existing outside of the world of misery. I don't know if this is a character that should exist outside of the world of misery, outside of the, the story of Paul Sheldon, because she functioned within that novel so perfectly and with a singular purpose to tell about obsession, to tell about the dangers of toxic fandom, of addiction. She functioned less as a person and more of a force. She was a, 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 a towering woman uh, who was described as like this ancient like stone idol that you know one might find in a pulp magazine. Um, telling of like a, a lost tribe, you know, that, that, that a lost tribe would be worshiping uh, that has come alive, right? So she is this force um, that, you know, I mean, like King is able to humanize even his most villainous villains. So it's not, it, it, it's not out of the realm that you do feel at some point some sympathy for, for Annie, but uh, she is a monster. Even though she is human, she is one of his most monstrous creations, and, and here she is being portrayed um, by by Lizzie Kaplan, who, who doesn't have that physical uh, stature. Nothing again, it's just, it's not, it's not her build. Um, it's not her fault. But if she is going to be cast in this role, I, I kind of would have liked to see a different, a different portrayal of what Lizzie Kaplan could do without her being the that, that, that sort of fussy, you know, you know, G-rated version. You know, that, that's the thing of, of Annie Wilkes is that she won't swear. She will murder you brutally with a <laughs> ice cream scooper, but she won't, she won't swear at you. Um, and I just don't know if that functions, if that, if that really exists in, in the real world, because as she functioned in Misery, 
that surreality was a part of the personalized hell that Paul Sheldon was existing in, and she was its devil. Um, by opening it up to the world outside of that cabin um, into the, the, the quote-unquote real world of Castle Rock, where she's going to have to interact with others, I don't know if that particular incarnation of uh, Annie Wilkes works as well because it does come off as very cartoonish recognizable yes but very cartoonish and um though uh lizzie kaplan is is performing it very well i would have like i said i would have liked to have seen a different interpretation based on the expectations of this character interacting with others in an open world setting in 2019 um, if they have made changes to Pop Merrill to make him more nuanced, um, then I would like to see what what they did with with letting Lizzie Kaplan act a little bit more true to her acting sensibilities, or at least the acting sensibilities that she has portrayed before in the past. I and mean, she's an actress; she can do she can act however the hell she wants. Um, but to me, this doesn't seem true to her strengths by mimicking the cadence speech patterns dialogue walk mannerisms of an actress that won an academy award for a role i just don't think that's fair to her so mads mickelson when he was cast as hannibal does not play that character in any way like anthony hopkins he makes that character his own completely. He reinvents the character to fit the needs of the show that's being told. Um, and I, I, I wish, based on what I've seen, and all this can change, um, but I, I, I would like to see the same done with Annie Wilkes. Okay, I think I said that well. Okay, let's talk about Tim Robbins again. This is a huge get, guys. Tim Robbins, lovable actor. Tim Robbins, the star of, like I said, unquestionably, it is unquestionable. It is the most popular movie of all time. All right? And it's really well done. And that popular movie, most popular movie of all time, happens to be a Stephen King adaptation. And you might argue it might be the best Stephen King adaptation. I still think it's The Shining, but it's just me. Um, so this is huge that he gets to return to the world of Stephen King. Um, it's a different version of pop. Um, this is a more human version of pop. This is one, he has layers. He is a war vet. He is responsible for bringing Abdi and Nadia to Castle Rock, to America. He has brought, um, Somalian refugees here um, for sanctuary. So there is a, a deeply humanistic component to this character that is in stark contrast to the pop that was depicted in the books. Book novella, all right? I, I, and that's fine because he really was only showcased in truth in one novella so if they want to reinterpret pop merrill that's kind of open for business um so to see a character that is going to be contradictory in his uh business pursuits his legal pursuits 
in one hand and then be someone that takes in people that need the most help that i i like when two things can be simultaneously true um within a character that seem to be polar opposites and and though when you have these twin opposites occurring within the same character I i find that fascinating and who better to do it than tim robbins who you just like you just like this guy and he has he's able to he's able to bring a sleaziness to to a performance as well that I think will do him well here. Not to say that he's sleazy, but I think that he's able to when he wants to be a little sleazy, he can. And so it's all great. Um But man, guys, I gotta say, as much as I like Tim Robbins and as much as I like as I like him in this role, I don't know what he's doing with this accent. I really don't get it. When he portrayed Andy in Shawshank Redemption, which takes place in Maine, he's not chewing up the scenery with a fake Maine accent. Okay? I don't know what this is. I know that I've gone on record talking about acting and bad accents. This is bad. This is like a bad, bad guy accent. Like you're like you just got cast as like a gangster and this is this is just what you do um mm, it's not great i just wish he dropped the accent i'd be totally into it way more if he's having fun with it great he's having fun with it but this kind of takes me out of it um so other than that i'm looking forward to seeing what tim robbins brings to the the proceedings because he is a phenomenal actor and he's back in the world Stephen King and that cannot be overstated enough um and then one last thing is is uh the diversity and the updated conflicts uh within the show so we get uh the Somalian refu- refugee plot line and it this does not seem like something out of a Stephen King book but um it's a detail I think is very potent and it's one that I am looking forward to seeing explored um, in the show so just because it is different and not necessarily something that you would see in a Stephen King book doesn't mean that it isn't something worth exploring and something that doesn't have value I'm something I think that actually adds something to this show okay so guys I um, really can't come down on any way good or bad of Castle Rock because I need to reserve my judgment until I get some more under my belt because like I said it is just different than what I expected and different than what season one had been there's some cool concepts that I don't know really work outside of the conceptual questioning of whether or not it should exist like should we get a story in which Misery and Salem's Lot take place at the same time? I don't know. We'll find out. Um, but right now I'm in that I don't know stage. All right, but now I'm going to get to some uh, Easter eggs. So we have the typewriter. Um, yeah, we, we, we have the typewriter, which uh, is a callback to Misery. Again, we have uh, at one point in the, the, the hospital, Annie sees a wheelchair roll into view that wheelchair again is a shout out to to misery the emporium glorium is a long-standing needful things uh location 
as is the Mellow Tiger, as seen in Season 1. Shawshank is opening up again, and I wonder if we'll actually get to go back into Shawshank. Uh, you know what? You just cast Tim Robbins in this role. Shawshank is opening up again. I find it very hard to believe that there's not going to be a scene in which uh, Pop Merrill doesn't visit someone in Shawshank or he is imprisoned in Shawshank. That would be... That's kind of a big deal. I assume. I, I imagine that that would happen. Like I said, we have tra train tracks as a shout-out to uh, the body. Jerusalem's Lot... Uh, I'm sure that we'll get into a lot more about Jerusalem's lot. Um, this is speculation on my part, like I said, but I really think that this hallucination that Annie keeps seeing is John Shooter, or supposed to be invocative. Uh, it's it's supposed to make you think of John Shooter from Secret Window, Secret Garden. Um, when we first meet Pop, we see him using a Polaroid. This is a shout out to uh, his novella, The Sun Dog. Um, then we have the cabin that Joy and Annie are staying in. If you were to guess, even without seeing it, what number the cabin is. No, it's not 217 or 237. It's all 19, man. It's coming up 19. Everything's 19. Um, and then we have just like some th like conceptual thematic uh, Easter eggs. Um, and that's Annie Wilkes holding someone captive. All right, so she is, in a sense, holding Joy captive. And that is well within her character. And then we have the romance novel. Um, when Annie does a search, there's a reference to a romance novel. That's a shout-out to Annie's number one passion. Okay, guys, so that's all I've got for Castle Rock Episode 1 of Season 2. Like I said, we'll I'll 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 watch more. I'll probably do a couple more episodes of it, uh, and um, at the very least, because uh, Dustin gave me his time to allow me to interview him, I'm going to um, give him my time and the benefit of the doubt uh, because he is a bigger Stephen King fan than me. Um, to see how this season goes through. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, if I do have reservations, I'm sure that he will quell those reservations. He and Sam Shaw. Um, but I will give him, for sure, the benefit of the doubt because he he and his team uh, gave us some incredible moments last year uh, with, with Castle Rock Season 1. And, I'm looking, and he already gave us an incredible moment this year when <laughs> Annie murdered Ace Merrill with an ice cream scooper. Uh, so I'm looking forward to some incredible moments coming up from the, the rest of the season. So um, I will definitely share my thoughts. I don't know if it's episode by episode, but I'll share my thoughts right here on the Stephen King cast. Okay, guys. So uh, it's November, and we got a movie coming out soon. Uh, I can't wait. The, the reviews are coming in. They're coming in pretty positive. There, there's some hesitations here and there, but... Um, this is definitely uh, in my wheelhouse, and I am more optimistic about Doctor Sleep than I was about Pet Cemetery. Um, and as someone that is a staunch supporter and defender of the book Doctor Sleep, I'm ready to I'm ready to support Mike Flanagan's adaptation of this. Um, if people, I, I, 
if 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 there is any criticism of the movie and I haven't seen it yet um, that mirrors the criticism of the book a lot of the criticism of the book I do believe can be boiled down to the fact that it is nothing like The Shining which I believe is intentional and I believe it's the point and I believe that Dr. Sleep the book serves as a companion piece not necessarily like it is a sequel but it really functions as a companion piece um, to the Shining, and I'm really looking forward to see how deeply Mike Flanagan understands that and how he's able to bring that out. Because I, and again, I loved The Haunting of Hill House, and um, I had some problems with Gerald's game, but I really enjoyed it. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what he has in store for Doctor Sleep. So I will definitely be reviewing Doctor Sleep. I hope that I'll be able to see it the weekend that it comes out. Um, I am just very, 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 very excited to go to the theater and sit down and watch this movie and then be able to tell you how I feel about this movie. Um, all right, guys, if you have any thoughts on Castle Rock so far, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And like I said, if... Oh, and that actually goes to... What are your thoughts on the Institute? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what the consensus on the Institute is. So if you have any thoughts on the Institute, write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Uh, and if you have some free time on your hands, uh, leave me a review on iTunes. It would really, really help me out. Okay, guys. I don't know what the future holds, but I know that um, I will be back again probably to review another episode of Castle Rock or... Um, uh, Dr. Sleep when that comes out, which is just uh, in a week or two. So until then, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Cast. Stephen King Cast.